Hello, welcome to episode 9 of the Rocky Mountain Mason podcast. I am Ben Williams, your host, publisher and editor-in-chief of the Rocky Mountain Mason magazine. Today I thought I would read to you another article, this time from issue 3 of the Rocky Mountain Mason. If you're interested in this article and others, this issue is available online at www.rockymountainmason.com. It's titled, The Nuclean Screed, The Religious Rumblings of an Anonymous Anti-Mason. Screed, the religious rumblings of an anonymous anti-Mason. I just got back from Norwood Lodge, which is in Nuclear, Colorado, from a sparsely attended meeting. I was the first to arrive, and I immediately noticed the brown envelope stuck to the front door. The back was faded by the sun. It had been there for months. I unlocked the front door to our small building and carefully tore the envelope three. It was one of those big ones, you know, eight and a half by eleven, big enough to fit unfolded paper in, and by the feel of it, there was paper in there about half an inch thick. It was addressed to Masonic members and associates in large, hand-drawn black letters. Here we go, I thought. This is not from the assessor or insurance company. I opened it up and drew out a carefully prepared packet. The title and handwritten print read, Christianism in the Masonic Lodge. Oh, boy. Someone had clearly taken a lot of time to prepare this packet, which unequivocally proved, according to the bottom of the first page, that Masons were being, and I quote, cunningly deceived and led by Satan straight into hell. I decided to peruse the document a little. No no one had arrived yet, and to be honest, this this kind of stuff amuses me. So I, I read the first page. Apparently, and I quote, long after one reaches the 32nd degree or is elected into the 33rd degree are the first documents revealed to the initiate. These confidential documents intended only for the inner circle clearly prove that masonry is lifting up and exalting Satan as their light, lord and creator. It gets better because, you see, Masonry glorifies all pagan and false gods, including the Muslims, Allah and Osiris, god of the underworld. I didn't know that Osiris was a Muslim, but I kept reading. Masonry states the Muslims' Quran belongs on their altar and that the Holy Bible is nothing more than furniture in the lodge. Now that, that actually made me smile. So what was this fascinating secret document? that revealed the grand plan of the 33rd degree to lead all Masons straight into hell. What was this confidential, well-hidden source apparently revealing the true Masonry only to the paymasters and demonic puppeteers that secretly controlled every Masonic institution up there somewhere at the lofty heights of the 33rd degree? I turn the page. Yup, you guessed it. Morals and Dogma, by Our Man Pike. For Pete's sake, I thought, a wry smile curling my lips. There was a recreation of the frontispiece of this Masonic tome. 
The author had kindly highlighted relevant sections and pointed out long words, supplying definitions with underlining, just so I wouldn't get lost. Dogma, an arrow pointed out, meant a belief taught as true by authority, underlined twice, an opinion asserted in a positive manner as if authoritative, and esoteric meant intended for an inner circle, secret, and confidential. This was clearly a book, and I quote, given to the initiate only after he reaches the 32nd degree, not before, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Well, Amazon is going to be miffed, I'm used. They better take down all those copies they've got for sale, then. The rest of the packet included pages Xeroxed out of morals and dogma in a piecemeal hodgepodge of supposed damnation. It was covered in highlighted passages, arrows, sections of the Bible, and frenetic underlining. I paid close heed. But everywhere, the error seemed to be on the author. I spent a good amount of time paging through it all, believe me. And besides, the author appeared sincere, you know, if half mad. So I thought I should at least try to understand their point of view. But it was everywhere skewed. Case in point, about 20 pages into it, page 226 of Morals and Dogma had been copied, and the following sentences highlighted in yellow and pink highlighter. Now note throughout this mess, the author used pink for the really incriminating stuff. So we begin with a yellow highlighted section that read, Masonry around whose altars the Christian, underlined twice, the Hebrew, the Muslim, the Brahmin, the followers of Confucius and Zoroaster can assemble as brethren and unite in prayer to the, begin pink highlighted section, one God who is above all the Balaim, end pink highlighted section. The author had kindly defined Balaim as Hebrew plural of Baal, and then next to that explained that Baal meant, in capital letters, false god, sun god, chief god of the Canaanites, god of fertility. Thank goodness the one god is above all of these, I thought. But then I realized the author had somehow inserted a parenthetical clause into the sentence which wasn't actually there. He was projecting what he hoped to find, and subconsciously had twisted the logic around. The author had somehow read, the one God who is, comma, above all, comma, the Balaim, interpreting above all as some sort of rhetorical interjection, a superlative of rhetorical fact, rather than a supremacy of position above all that is false. Commas are important. I felt compassion for this person. Desperate to save us poor, lost masons from the damnation we were bringing upon ourselves. Determined to zealously pounce on scripture, to deny any other opinion, and to claim us as witches led astray, they were somehow lost in their own graveyard. But these weren't my bones they were digging up, nor masonry's neither. Much of the screed highlighted serious philosophical underpinnings of the Judeo-Christian faiths, but the writer had interpreted them in a horribly inverted way. This screed was a mirror, not of masonry, but of the person who wrote it. It just goes to show why secrecy is important, and why holiness is for the holy. Because it doesn't matter what someone or something says. People of small minds and heavy hearts will quickly fill the letters with their own ink and snatch ghosts of their own personalities from between the lines. Is it any wonder our system of morality is veiled in allegory and illustrated by symbols? 
Awakening to an understanding of God is a personal journey and a received personal experience. It's an experience that transcends mere words. And it's a secret that can be given only to one who already possesses it. Water from the purest well is readily stained when drawn in a dirty bucket. I thought about sitting down with this person to explain some of this and gently point out the erroneous interpretations in every instance, and I mean every instance, but they hadn't left the name or a contact. Probably a Seventh-day Adventist from the church down the street, I supposed. There was really no one else in the town of Nukla. But wait, weren't the Seventh-day Adventists shunned by the Catholic Church for not believing in the hypostasis of the Trinity? I think so. Bloody heretics. So there's some other good examples that this screed illuminated, and one of them I wanted to uh, I wanted to bring up here. Um, you know, the favorite passage of all evangelical anti-Masons, the inevitable Lucifer clause. So it says here in the in Morals and Dogma, it says the apocalypse is to those who receive the nineteenth degree the apotheosis of that sublime face which aspires to God alone and despises all the pomps and works of Lucifer. Lucifer, the light bearer, strange and mysterious name to give to the spirit of darkness. Lucifer, the son of the morning. It is he which bears the light, and with its splendors, intolerable, binds feeble and sensual or selfish souls. Doubt it not, for traditions are full of divine revelations and inspirations, and so on and so forth and so on and so forth. But um, the mistaken interpretation is twofold. One, it's a misunderstanding of the origin of the term Lucifer as the morning star, the appellation given to Venus when rising before dawn, a title given to many people in the Bible, including Jesus. And two, it ignores the context of the quote completely. Um, the quote in, is basically Albert Pike writing in the subjunctive mood, um, which is sort of a hypothetical conversation. You know, he's remarking on the oddness of the title of the Prince of Darkness to be the bearer of light. Um, he is not in any way, shape, or form saying that one should worship the devil. Um, so what can I say? There's much more that could be said on this subject um, since it is one that continues to haunt uh, the Brotherhood. So I thought I would also read to you um, an article about the accusations of Luciferianism, which present day continually affront the fraternity of Freemasons. <laughs> conspiracy theorists love to pin all sorts of nefarious dealings on us Freemasons. The accusations are manifold, but essentially they devolve into three main camps, more or less extensive. One, the Masons are a vehicle used by the Illuminati to take over the world, destroying all religions and national sovereignties to set up the Antichrist enthroned in opposition to everything right and holy. Two, by accepting multiple faiths into a Masonic lodge, Freemasonry is a tool of Satan himself, wielded to contravene Christianity, 
particularly the literalist interpretation of John 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And three, most Masons are unwitting fools, condemning their souls one pancake at a time. All the money we give to charity, it can never buy back our souls because we just don't know what is really going on up there, over Herodom, at those dizzying heights of the 33rd degree. The logical fallacy of these absurdities notwithstanding, if somebody really wanted to take over the world, there are much better options than masonry, yet anti-masonry appears as old as the fraternity itself. The first consolidated move against Freemasonry appears when Holland banned membership in the fraternity as a criminal offence, a mere 18 years after the formation of the Grand Lodge of London in 1717. We might presume due to the suspected Jacobite leanings against the Protestant House of Orange. This is ironic, considering the main opponent of Freemasonry next to emerge, the Catholic Church. The Roman See issued a papal bull in 1738, condemning all Freemasons and those who aided them in any way to pain of excommunication from which no one can obtain the benefit of absolution other than at the hour of death, except through ourselves, a.k.a. Pope Clement Twelfth or the Roman pontiff of the time. That was from In Eminente Apostolata Specula. The main issue, it seems, was not devil worship or aspirations of global domination, but secrecy pledged under oath upon the Bible. This left the doors of the society closed, except perhaps to overactive imagination. Now, I should also point out, um, as an, an interjection here, that part of the church's move against Freemasonry very well might have resulted from a concern over the Hanoverian Protestant cause which uh, Masonry was advancing, particularly the moderns. Um, the work of Rick Berman is especially fascinating in this regard. Uh, many members of the Horn Tavern Lodge, including John Custis, who we'll mention later on in this pre piece, um, were likely, actually, spies. Um, so there is something of a Protestant-Catholic conflict, kind of Cold War, um, going on in the background of the early church's moves against Freemasonry. But anyway, I digress. Um, the main issue, it seems, was not devil worship or aspirations of global domination, but secrecy pledged under oath upon the Bible. This left the doors of the society closed, except perhaps to overactive imagination. This secrecy, Clement, is one to interpret in light of John 3, verse 20. Ki mala agit odit lucem. He who does evil hates the light. The assumption appears to be that while the church can't prove there's anything nefarious ongoing, the fact that it's a secret means we Masons must be hiding something. Pope Clement writes, Thus, these aforesaid societies or conventicles have caused in the minds of the faithful the greatest suspicion, and all prudent and upright men have passed the same judgment on them as being depraved and perverted. For if they were not doing evil, they would not have so great a hatred of the light. Clement goes on to authorize his underlings, including the Inquisition, to, and I quote, pursue and punish them with condign penalties as being most suspect of heresy. By his own pen, he bases his contempt on rumors and common gossip and authorizes use of condign penalties, a.k.a. torture, at the hands of the Inquisition because we Masons are most suspect of heresy. One might ask, then, whether or not Freemasonry weighs the same as a duck.
while the scales were certainly mercilessly applied. Testimony is extant from John Custis, who I mentioned earlier in Interjection, for example, a Swiss jeweler who, after founding a lodge in Lisbon, suffered at the hands of the Inquisition for over a year before being released in 1744 by intervention of King George II of England. According to his own testimony, he was tortured on at least nine occasions, but he was luckier than some of his brethren who met the gallows and hanged the year before. The main complaint of the Inquisition, it seems, was use of biblical law in a format unrecognized and unsanctioned by Mother Church. This was blasphemy, and such biblical injunctions were commonplace in the early operative craft. We know, for example, from Etienne Beaulieu, the provost of the corporations of Paris, from his Code of the Usages and Customs of the Masons, the Stonemasons, the Plasterers, and the Mortarers, collated about 1260 at Paris by order of King Louis IX, that the operative craft guilds made use of oaths as early as the High Middle Ages. In a time when literacy was a luxury enjoyed by a ruling class, use of mystery plays for instilling moral teachings was everywhere remarkable. The Noahkite rite of early masonry, from which John Custis's masonry no doubt evolved, for example, owes much to the mystery plays of the preceding age. So it should come as no surprise, really, that obligations and ritualistic initiations that acted out biblical scenes were part and parcel of the early speculative craft. Clement XII's ban on Masonic membership would be ratified by Popes Benedict XIV, Pius VII, Leo XII, Pius VIII, Gregory XVI, and Pius IX. But still, the charge remained that Freemasonry concealed its membership from the world and therefore must dwell in the shadows. But a century later, Pope Leo XIII wrote Masons were now working to and I quote, overthrow the whole religious and political order of the world. But not really finding much proof of this, he goes on to add that the Masonic Federation is to be judged not so much by the things which it has done or brought to completion as by the sum of its pronounced opinions. Again, if she weighs the same as a duck, she must be a witch. So what are these opinions? by which Freemasonry is to be judged, and by which our overarching disruption to the whole religious and political order of the world may be exposed. By Leo's own admission in his encyclical Humanum Genus, and I quote, natural philosophy, that is, humanist reason, popularized in the Enlightenment, and not by any means peculiar to Freemasonry. Leo's entire attack on Masonry is based against the humanist idea that the, and I quote, church and state ought to be altogether disunited, which, from the modern perspective at least, certainly seems like a good idea. Thus, unequivocally, earliest anti-Masonry, arising in the century after the iconic meeting at the Goose and the Gridiron pub, seems entirely fixed against the secrecy of Masonic members the oaths and obligations binding men together, and the meeting of men to discuss subjects other than church canon. In the U.S., the formation of the anti-Masonic party in 1828, the only major third party to emerge in the U.S., bespeaks concerns that in-dealing and Masonic nepotism were polluting the political process here. Rallied by the disappearance and suspected death of Masonic exposer William Morgan in 1826, which we will cover in another podcast in the future, the anti-Masonic party rose to prominence in opposition to the candidacy of Most Worshipful Brother Andrew Jackson. 
but the Führer was oriented at the influence Masons could disproportionately wield in favor of their brethren. This is a similar concern as for the Church, only the party affected in this instance is the state, but the charges leveled are nonetheless almost equivalent. Significantly, brethren, devil worship is not one of them. For almost 200 years, then, after the formation of the First Grand Lodge in England, accusations of devil worship and Luciferianism were not overtly made. Not until the turn of the 20th century, when the work of a self-confessed hoaxer, Leo Taxel, was seized upon by every anti-Masonic enthusiast the world over, does this peculiar strain of anti-Masonry appear on the record. We have to look at this hoax, because almost all the Luciferian madness hinges upon it. Leo Taxel was one of several pseudonyms for Marie-Joseph-Gabriel Jogand-Page. He was a French journalist and staunch anti-Catholic. He pretended to convert to Catholicism in the latter 19th century, and famously wrote against Freemasonry under various names, about the time of, the, of Pope Leo XIII's Humanum Genus, as it happens, alleging preposterous crimes at the door of the Lodge. Amongst these, accusations of devil worship. Taxel claimed to have a written confession from one Diana Vaughan, detailing her libidinous involvement with a satanic cult connected to a Masonic Lodge. In April of 1897, at a convention assembled specifically to introduce Diana Vaughan in person, her phantom had risen to some notoriety by this time, Taxel surprised everyone by confessing that Vaughan, and in fact the whole of his anti-Masonic propaganda, was just a hoax, deliberately devised to expose both the contumacy of the church and the ridiculousness of the fraternity. It was too effective a campaign, though. Despite his own public confession, this myth remains alive today, ardent with the simple-minded, awash in false opinions, absurdity, and longing. A fine example of the evolution of this Luciferian lie among anti-Masons is evinced in transmission from one of Taxel's pamphlets. Taxel claims to expose a nefarious letter written by none other than our man, Albert Pike, to an Italian politician, Giuseppe Mazzini. The letter, the pamphlet says, stressed designs for dismantling the Catholic Church and proves a Masonic conspiracy to secularize the world. Then, in 1925, Taxel's pamphlet is cited as fact by Cardinal Rodriguez of Chile in his book, The Mystery of Freemasonry Unveiled. Rodriguez elaborates the lie, bringing the secular designs in the pamphlet to bear on the Bolshevik uprising in Russia at that time. Now, Pike's plan suddenly includes communism. Cardinal Rodriguez embellishes further. The letter, he claims, is in the property of the British Museum in London. It isn't. The letter is never specifically cited, only contextually referenced in support of the divisive narrative Rodriguez allows. Then, in 1956, Rodriguez is cited in the book Pawns in the Game by Guy Carr. Carr, Carr also outlines what the letter says, without actually citing it. With Carr driving the lie, the letter now morphs into a massive plot aimed at global domination to enthrone the Antichrist over his new world order. According to Carr, Pike told Mazzini the Illuminati would instigate three world wars to bring about this ultimate aim, a fitting paranoia for the 1950s, but one not mentioned at all in either of the earlier iterations of the lie. 
today, in 2020, you can actually read the letter online. It is interesting to note terms such as Nazi Party, not used until after Pike's death. Of course, Pike, as some grand wizard of the black arts, probably drew these words from some black obsidian plate. It is dumbfounding how some people grow delusions like rose gardens and defend them as if defending their life's work. And in some cases, the delusion actually is their life's work. The lie is powerful when the liar wants to believe it, but it is insurmountable when it defines the liar. If there is a Luciferian conspiracy, I venture such zealous self-righteousness as comes from these conspiracists would serve it well. I will leave you with the words of Leo Taxel himself from an interview with National Magazine he gave in 1906. In so doing, we will come to realize that Taxel's not the one to blame, but, alas, as is all too evident presently, a somnambulist public. The public made me what I am, the arch liar of the period. When I first commenced to write against the Masons, my object was amusement, pure and simple. The crimes I laid at their door were so grotesque, so impossible, so widely exaggerated, I thought everyone would see the joke and give me credit for originating a new line of humor. But my readers wouldn't have it so. They accepted my fables as gospel truth, and the more I lied for the purpose of showing that I lied, the more convinced became they that I was a paragon of veracity. Then it dawned upon me that there was lots of money in being a Munchausen of the right kind, and for twelve years I gave it to them hot and strong, but never too hot. When indicting such slush as the story of the devil snake who wrote prophecies on Diana, as Diana Vaughan's back, with the end of his tale, I sometimes said to myself, hold on, you are going too far. But I didn't. My readers even took kindly to the yarn of the devil, who in order to marry a mason, transformed himself into a crocodile, and despite the masquerade, played the piano wonderfully well. One day, when lecturing at Lille, I told my audience that I had just had an apparition of Nautilus, the most daring affront on human credulity I had so far risked. But my hearers never turned a hair. Hear ye? The doctor has seen Nautilus, they said with admiring glances. Of course, no one had a clear idea of who Nautilus was. I didn't myself, but they assumed that he was a devil. Ah, the jolly evenings I spent with my fellow authors hatching out new plots, new, unheard-of perversions of truth and logic, each trying to outdo the other in organized mystification. I thought I would kill myself laughing at some of the things proposed, but everything went. There is no limit to human stupidity. This and other material of this nature, please do subscribe to our magazine, available at www.rockymountainmason.com. You may also be interested in our parent company's wares, available at www.laughinglion.net. Thank you for listening. If you would like to support this podcast, please contribute to our Patreon page. The link is on our Buzzsprout feed. Until next time, take care and Godspeed.